And let's go ahead and start our evening here with a word of prayer and uh, get into what we need to here this evening. Lord, we are individuals that are thankful that you're a God that uh, desires to fellowship with us, that you desire us to know you, and that uh, through these parables and the study of them, we can know you better, we can know your heart, uh, even some of the emotions that you have uh, towards us. And so may we learn from a set of parables that we're going to look at this evening, uh, what your heart is and what your desire is, even for us to how to approach you uh, in what way we should. So, Lord, we thank you that uh, we have this time. May we see you answer some of these prayer requests that uh, are on this list and be able to rejoice in you doing a work even in those. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, as we turn there, I, I do, when we were talking this morning, we had, what, 13 people this morning, 14 people in the time this morning. But uh, we have to remind ourselves, last week we did not uh, really go over any parables. We just kind of talked through what parables were, that they were instruments that the Lord used on a very regular basis to uh, try and illustrate truth. Uh, a parable means to cast alongside. What the Lord was doing was casting a story alongside a truth, illustrating truths that uh, he wanted to get across. And that when you look at the parables, they're not to be like some secret code in the sense of that each character and item in the story is some sort of uh, you know, secret of some kind, like an allegory, which an allegory, everything in the story means something else and that you're looking for the main truth, or sometimes there are two truths or three truths, oftentimes on the basis of how many characters are in the story. There's three characters, there's probably three major truths that the Lord is trying to get across. But in all of that, we said uh, in the parables, and some have that there are 40 parables, some have that there's like 25, you know, it depends on what you categorize as a parable in Christ's teaching that there are only two that are actually interpreted. And so that means you're going to have a little bit of work when it comes to the parables and trying to find out or figure out what the parables uh, are talking about, why the Lord told that. And last week we said, the, 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 to me, the major key in understanding a parable is what? what, what if you understand something, you'll probably be able to figure out what the parable's about. What is it? It's good. We're going to go over this again because I remind you until you get it in your head. It's good for you to look at the surrounding context, okay? Not the text itself, the surrounding context, especially the stuff that goes on before. Usually there's a reason that you find out in stories beforehand that you go, oh, okay, this is what this parable was directed to with something that happened previous to this. Uh, for instance, uh, we have the one story where the Pharisees are upset that Jesus is, well, having time with the publics and sinners. We see that here too. Um, and Jesus tells three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And you go, well, okay, God rejoices in the fact that sinners get saved. Great. That's not why he told those parables. That is a truth from him. 
You get the, the truth at the very end of the prodigal son story where you have this older son that's pouting and has his arms folded outside the feast and he's throwing a you know, adult-sized temper tantrum that his brother gets a feast and he gets a gold ring and he gets this and he gets the fatted calf and everything else and he's been the good son the whole time. And you're going, oh, so this story is addressed to the Pharisees who are standing outside upset that God is doing good things towards sinners and they've been good this whole time. And what the Lord's addressing is that their attitude is a bad attitude um, with that. So um, you get the context that will help us. And so this today we're going to go through uh, the context surrounding the parables we're going to look at, the parables that are often described as old and new parables. Uh, and we'll see why as we get into them. But look at the context before this. Matthew chapter 9, you find in verse number 9 that it says this, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, after he's just healed a man from para, uh, uh, paralysis, Uh, Jesus passed from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Verse 10, and it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy, not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you look at this, the surrounding context, and what happens before the parables is this. Okay, this is going to fill, you've got a space there underneath us. What's the context? You have someone who's hated that gets to feast with Jesus. You have Matthew here, also known as Levi in the other gospel accounts, but he's Matthew here, um, and he is a tax collector. He's a little bit different than Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a tax collector who goes around to people's houses and goes, you owe me so much, you owe the Roman government this much, you owe the Roman government this much. When it says that Matthew is at the receipt of custom, uh, in the city of Capernaum, Capernaum was a major town in Israel that crossed a major highway that went from the Middle East down to Egypt. So it's a crossroad. And what Matthew was basically doing was a toll collector. You know, we, we today don't even think about it anymore. You drive underneath it and it takes your money and you, know, you don't realize it's taking your money until it shows up in the bill uh, that it's recharged. Uh, but back then what would happen is that you had an individual that would sit here and he would then say, see somebody go by and he said, come over here. Uh, what goods do you have? Okay, we're going to tax you for shipping your goods on this highway. So he's a tax collector for the Roman government. Um, this made him one of the more hated individuals in society. And as you read through the scripture, if you were to have people to define bad people in their society, they would say sinners, which would be people who were obviously doing wrongdoing, and publicans, same category. And sometimes the publicans were worse than the sinners. It just depended on how you felt that day uh, with your bank uh, account uh, being less than what it was before. 
So here's Jesus. He has this man by the name of Matthew. And understand, it's not that Jesus just goes walking down the street and he goes by Matthew and he just says, follow me. And Matthew goes, oh, hey, this guy just said, follow me. I'll follow him. Okay? There's been something going on before this that Matthew has had opportunity to hear Jesus speak because he's in Capernaum where Jesus is centering his ministry. He's perhaps been eyewitness to some of the miracles that have taken place. Uh, he's heard the teaching of Christ. So when Jesus says, follow him, it's not just you know this blank story where this guy just you know, magically starts following Jesus. There, there has to be an element here where he has heard things about Christ beforehand and seen him. Maybe even had conversations with him. Don't know. But what happens after this is Matthew gathers together his friends. Tax collectors and sinners. Who else is he going to get? And has them come and say this. He goes, okay, I want you to meet this one I'm now following who's willing to identify with sinners and tax collectors. And so that's, that's the, the immediate background of what's going on. Jesus is eating with sinners and publicans. And you have a, this question in your notes, what are the two opposing groups seen in this context? It's fairly easy. You got the self-righteous Pharisees over here that are always following every law. And you have the sinners, Okay, these are the two opposing groups. People who have nothing according to righteousness and people who claim to have everything when it comes to righteousness. Okay, so two opposing groups. But then you have this question and it is designed kind of as, and it's a, it's a series of questions that these Pharisees are asking that are basically questioning what Jesus is doing. I can't believe you're doing this is really what they're saying. I mean, if they were just, you know, put it in the vernacular, I can't believe you're doing this. And for them, it's how could Jesus eat with the publicans and sinners? And they don't ask Jesus this question. Note that. They, they don't go to Jesus. They talk to his disciples and are basically bad-mouthing Jesus to his disciples because they aren't willing to go to him directly and say, oh, we disagree with what you're doing. But Jesus hears the conversation, whether it's through open windows or whatever, because people on the outside you know, could do this, but they're questioning why the Lord's doing this. And Jesus responds, and some call this a parable, but it's really not a parable, it's just a statement, very quick statement, okay? Uh, and it's just simply this, those that are healthy don't need help. Those that are sick need help. And the understanding here is who needs help? It's people who are sick. And Jesus is suggesting the fact that he's the one who can help people who are sick. And the only way to help people to get here that are sick is to get close to them. I mean, nowadays we do live in the environment where they're trying to distance you farther and farther from doctors. You know, they have these hospitals now where this robot goes around with this iPad and the doctor talks to you in your room, you know, is in the hospital and, you know, hey, how you doing? It's not very personable. And it, the problem is, is how do you, you know, touch the person, feel certain things? Can you, but they do this now and it's very impersonal. But if you've got a good doctor... 
what are they doing? They're coming in and they're checking things. They're asking you questions. They get up close. They're, they're in your personal space as far as, the, you know, they check your, your, your um, heart rate. You know, they've got stuff they stick in your ears. You're like, really? Okay. But they do this because they have the ability to be able to treat you and perhaps make you better. They have to come in close contact with you. And what the Lord is simply saying to these Pharisees is this, I'm here to help people who are sick. They know they're sick. People who think they're healthy don't go to doctors. Why? Because you don't want to find out you've got problems. If you feel good and you're doing well, you don't go to doctors. You don't set up appointments unless, you know, you realize, okay, you've crossed certain lines, you know, you're 50 years old, whatever, okay, this is the annual checkup I have to have because my insurance requires it. All right, I'm going to do this. But for the most part, you don't call your doctors until you have problems. When you think you're healthy, you're doing fine, you don't call them. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to people who know they're sick, They know they have problems. They know they aren't right. They know everybody's telling them this, and they know there's no question that they aren't right. They have no sort of righteousness, and so they need help. And so the Lord ends with a statement, okay, who needs help? It's sick people, sinners. Jesus is in contact with them. Sinners don't get saved by no contact. And so what he says is this, I don't go to people who are healthy. I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to help those that are sick. And righteous is referring to those Pharisees who are sitting there going, we've got everything going for us. We've got everything right. We're doing everything right. Those people are sinners. And the Lord's sitting there going, can you help somebody who thinks they're okay? No, you can't. Can you help somebody who knows they got problems? Yes. They're willing to get the solution. So from the start, the context is this. Okay, why are you eating with sinners? Well, because they're the ones that need help, and I'm getting close contact with it. And then you have another set of questions. This time, you read in verse number uh, 14, that then came to him the disciples of John. Okay, you look at the other the accounts, the Mark and uh, Luke accounts, the Pharisees are the ones pushing them with this question. But they come, these disciples of John, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but the disciples fast not? <clears throat> let, me, let me ask this question first, and perhaps, you know, th- this is something you probably don't know, but it's something the Jews would hopefully understand. How often were the Jews supposed to fast? Commanded by God. See, none of you know this, so here we go. One day. Can you think of one day on the Jewish calendar that you would think they would not be feasting, they would be fasting? Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. 
This is the day where uh, the solemn occasion where you have animals slaughtered for the sins both of the priest. You had this calf that was slaughtered and the blood taken into the presence of God by the high priest and sprinkled on the mercy seat where the Ark of the Covenant was at. And then he would come back out and slaughter an an a goat that was there. Take that blood, go in, and that was for the sins of the people. And then you had this animal whose hands uh, the, the priest rested upon that goat's uh, head. And they would take that goat out into the wilderness as a picture. It was a scapegoat of the taking away of sins. But Israel was commanded, I believe it's Leviticus 22, that they were commanded on the Day of Atonement to fast, not to eat. You go, how many other times are they supposed to fast? There's no other times commanded. There were special occasions in Israel's history where this was called for. You think of one occasion, Esther, you know, one of the things that she clearly does that's right, she tells people, uh, I'm going into the king, uh, but good time to fast because I, you know, I could die and we want him to respond, you know, and the whole idea of uh, maybe I'm here for such a time as this, okay? That, but it wasn't officially, you know, God saying you need to fast. So you were only supposed to fast one time a year. You know how often the Pharisees fasted? Let's just put this. How many times a week do you think they fasted? Close. Two. They fasted twice a week. So there was two days that they fasted they didn't eat. They did this every week. My guess is, and I, 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 you know, this is my own, <laughs> this is my own, Imagining the situation, I guess. My guess is that they're feasting on a day where the Pharisees are fasting. This feast is taking place where Jesus is eating with these sinners and everything, and it's a day that the Pharisees can't eat, so they're a little bit more grumpy than usual. You know how you get when you're, you're hungry uh, and whatever. But I, that, that's just my, my take on this. I could be wrong and whatever, but I, I kind of think that this is the issue that, hey, we're fasting. You know, look at us. We're not eating anything, but you're feasting uh, with us. But that's the only time they required to fast. You say, why did John's disciples do this? We're talking about John the Baptist here. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what John and his instructions for his disciples were, why he uh, told them they needed to fast, but the fact is, is there was things to be concerned about in the nation of Israel and things that needed to happen, so they were probably fasting then. And, and understand that we do have New Testament commands that there are certain things that only happen by prayer and fasting, okay? But we're not commanded to fast. So when this question comes up, from John's disciples, it's really the Pharisees are pushing and prodding them because they want to go, oh, well, we fast and you don't. You should be fasting. Jesus doesn't respond the way that they think he's going to. He tells a story. He tells three of them. He responds in verse 15. He says this, Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and they shall fast. And verse 16, no man putteth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish, 
but they put new wine in new bottles and both are preserved. End of story. Okay, end of everything, end of the situation. So you have the parable, first of all, of the bridegroom. Short one, but it's a parable. And you go, well, what's the meaning of this? Let's ask ourselves this question to start off with. Are weddings, okay, what is the attitude of a marriage feast? Is it somber or joyous? You better hope it's joyous, because if it's somber, there's something wrong with that. Okay, there, there's something that didn't go right with this, this wedding. Uh, but understand, in Jewish culture, this was like the highlight of society. Because what would happen when you had the marriage feast and everything that went along with it, this is something that lasted four, five, six, seven days in your community. It, it was a festival uh, occasion. Uh, you understand the, 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 the whole process. The, the man was at his father's house or his house, where, wherever he was going to be at long term. He's there with his groomsmen. Uh, they would eventually go, usually at night. They would go and get the bride, the wedding party, the bridesmaids there, they would go back to uh, the place where this man's going to live, whether it's his father's house or his house, and they'd have a grand festival. And it could go three, four, five, six, seven days. It was a joyous occasion. It was without question that. And what the Lord is simply saying is this. When you have something like that, it's a joyous occasion. What you've got here and he's hinting at this, you've got one who's coming to bring people to his father's house. His desire and hope is that these individuals who are sinners, okay, that they have this opportunity. But here you've got the bridegroom, and he's here. Why would you fast at a time like this when Jesus is actually here? For these men, think about this, publicans and sinners who don't think they have any sort of standing with God, God is sitting at the table with them. Jesus is there, okay? Some of these men have begun to understand that this one is not merely a prophet. He's something beyond that, that he is God because of the miracles that he does. No one could do this but God. And here this one is coming and sitting with them. You know the excitement? I mean, you have a little bit of this. Remember the story of Nicodemus? Or excuse me, Nicodemus. Wrong one. Zacchaeus. There we go. Yes. I got the ending right. Zacchaeus. And what was the excitement for him? The Lord said, I'm going to your house today. I want to eat a meal with you. And he's overjoyed. He gets down out of the tree as fast as he can, and he has this meal, and there's excitement. When you have the bridegroom, or in this case, Jesus with people who he takes time with them, he's close to them, they know him, they can fellowship with him. It's not a sad occasion, it's an occasion of joy. And you have this, you know, what's the attitude of marriage feast? It's, is it somber or joyous? Here's the comparison the Lord's making. Is being with God a somber or joyous thing? It's a joyous thing. If it's not, then there's something wrong. 
Okay, there's something wrong. And so what the Lord is addressing here, and you have this, the problem addressed, here's a blank that's there. It's on the back page uh, uh, on yours. Problem addressed. Religion had made God distant and somber. Here, these individuals are like, hey, we fast. And we know this for a fact because the Lord addresses this, that these guys would fast and actually put makeup on. You know, what do you mean? They would darken their eyes, you know, oh, you wouldn't believe how much I'm having to give up for fasting today. Uh, I want to let you know I'm fasting. And everyone's like, what a miserable bunch of people. You know, they're telling me I got to do this and that and 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 this and that. Why would I want to go that route? What the Pharisees had done through religion, okay? Understand, religion is different than a relationship. Religion is a certain set of ceremonies and the like that are designed to get you closer to God, and that's not going to happen. God says, okay, I can give you a relationship without all those things. The Pharisees had made being with God or coming near God a dreadful, somber, unhappy experience. And that's what the Lord's simply saying. You have made what should be the best thing ever to have fellowship with God, you've made it a miserable experience. It should be a joyous occasion. And then he goes on and and he starts with this this parable, what we call the cloth and the wineskins. What he begins to address is the whole system of the Pharisees, that it's not going to work with what he's doing. He gives the illustration of a, um, a, a piece of material, a piece of clothing that has a hole in it and it needs to be fixed. And so what you would do back then, you would patch it. Okay? It, nowadays, we just throw stuff out and buy something new. Uh, that's the culture we live in. Uh, we're the throwaway culture uh, very often, but I can remember my, my dad talking about uh, being a child of the uh, Depression era, coming out of that, his dad having lost the farm that uh, they were on, so they basically, dad went around the country getting jobs from the federal government under the alphabet soup things that were going on during that time. You go alphabet soup, all the government programs that had different letters to it. Um, that my dad would talk about that uh, they would have patches upon patches upon patches. He had a pair of overalls. You'd wear those and they'd get holes in them and you'd put a new piece of material on that. And eventually you ended up having to put a new patch on that. And you go, well, why was that? Well, because boys would be boys, and of course they, you know, burn holes in the patches, but um, they would be putting new material on older material. And when you wash older material or newer material, it does what? It shrinks. I kind of learned this with my mom. My mom's a seamstress. She does a lot of things uh, with clothing, less now than what she used to. But I can remember taking cloth before she would make something and throwing it in the wash. If that was allowed, you, you could do that. I mean, if it was material, you could do that with. And she'd put it in the wash. You go, why? Well, um, for two reasons. 
because A, she didn't want to cut a piece of material and then get it washed and it shrunk to a size that didn't fit the person anymore. So you would wash the material and then cut it in such a way that it would fit the person and, and then it would stay the same. And you didn't want it stretching seams. And so she would wash it in order to make it older so that it would work and be better. This is the concept that the Lord's giving. Here you got this piece of cloth, you sew a new piece of cloth on there, and what's eventually going to happen is that piece is going to tear out. It's still going to be doing what it's doing, and the older piece is eventually going to, or the new piece is going to shrivel, and it's going to tear at the seam. But when you get done, you're going to have a hole that's worse than it was before. It's a temporary fix doesn't work, but it's a temporary fix. Um, The Lord talks about that, so why does one not sew new cloth on old clothes? Because you're going to have a bigger problem. Okay, that's simply the the idea of that story. You're going to have a bigger problem. So what's the second story? We're not as familiar with this. We're used to containers to hold what we're drinking and storing plastic containers and the like. But back in that day, you would have uh, containers that held water uh, or held juice or whatever, and they would be made out of parts of animals, whether they be animal skins or the guts of animals, whatever the case may be. Uh, You would uh, clean those things up, obviously, and then use them as storage uh, containers for this. And back in the day, when you didn't have refrigeration and the like, you would get fresh juice and you would stick it inside these containers, and eventually what's going to happen is these things would ferment. And as the fermentation process happened, it would stretch. The gases would come out and it would stretch the skins. And after a while of this process over time, the skins would get to the point where they were about stretched as far as they were going to go. You know, you can do this with a rubber band. You can stretch it so far, and then finally it's just not going to stretch any further uh, over time. It's the same way with this. It's, it's going to get to a point where it's not going to stretch anymore. And so what you didn't do is take an old wine skin and take new juice to ferment in there and fill it up as full as you could get because sooner or later that would then have the gases that would start from the juice and it would expand and cause that container to explode. And now you've got a real problem because now it's all over the place. You've lost it. It's done. You've got a bigger problem. Um, so you have this. Why does one not put fresh juice into old wineskins? Because you're going to have a, a, a greater problem. You're going to have a loss of all of it. And you go, okay, nice story. So Jesus was just doing a public service announcement, you know, for people. Hey, you know, just be aware of this. I don't think you knew this. You know, don't don't put new cloth on old. <laughs> and it did, you know, no, the Lord wasn't doing a public service announcement. What he is dealing with is that it's this. The issue is that the old and new are not, and here's the blank there, is not compatible. They aren't going to work together. Not possible. And you go, well, what is he trying to get at? Well, it's, it's the end statement. 
Because realize the context. You've got people saying, hey, you ought to be fasting because we said we're supposed to. And, this is, you know, and they, would, they would say this is what Moses demanded, but they would put extra boundaries around what Moses was saying and, and then make this Moses' tradition. But what they were saying is, you need to follow this, you need to do this. And they were doing a, basically a works, religion-based uh, approach to God. And what you have in your notes is this. What's the teaching? It's just simply this. Pleasing God on the basis of works and law. Pleasing God on the basis of works and law is not compatible with pleasing God on the basis of new life in Christ. What, what the Lord is doing with this first parable in time, as far as we can tell, he's already firing shots that the Apostle Paul is going to have to address. Because what is the Apostle Paul always doing when he goes around and he starts preaching the gospel that people need Jesus Christ and people get saved? You have individuals who come along behind him and go, oh wait, you need Jesus, but you need this too. You need to be more like what Moses told the Israelites to be like. You need to have that in order to be a Christian. Or you need to, and you had some that were following the Pharisees, you need to do this, 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 and this, and a lot of it wasn't commanded even by Moses, and they're saying you have to do this plus Jesus and you'll be saved. And the Apostle Paul is having to, throughout his ministry, say faith without works is, well, it's not faith without works, faith with works is not going to work. It's incompatible. not going to happen. Um, And you can go to almost every book, or excuse me, every letter of the Apostle Paul, and he's having to address this in one way, shape, or form, where people are thinking, okay, I have Jesus Christ, but I have to add works. I'm patching new onto the old. I'm taking new thing full of life and sticking it into something that's old and didn't work, it doesn't work anymore, and I'm jamming it in there. It's not going to work. And so the Lord in the first parable is dealing with what the Pharisees are going to be pushing their whole time is that you have to approach God by works and he's just simply saying you approach God by me. No man comes unto the Father but by, I mean this is what Jesus is going to say, no person gets to the Father but by me. The Pharisees are going to go, no, you don't approach the Father, you don't get close to God unless you do all this stuff. Then you can get close to God. But not until then. And so right from the beginning, these first parables that the Lord is teaching, are, these are shots at, uh, you would say in the Navy term, shots across the bow. They're warning shots going, listen, what you're suggesting is not going to work. Religion is not the way to approach God. Works is not the way to approach God. Law is not the way to approach God. It is through something new new through me, new life that comes through me, it's going to happen that way. It's not going to work to combine the two. It will never work. And so that's what this parable is talking about. It's, you know, you, I read this for years and it was just like, okay, when old wineskins, new wine, yeah, cloth, whatever. But if you look at the context, then it suddenly starts making sense that the Lord is dealing with the rotten attitudes of the Pharisees who think that they are, they're healthy. And that's the problem. They think they're healthy. Sinners, they, they know they've got no hope. And what Jesus is offering them is hope, new life. Yeah, you, they're thinking, I can't do enough works to please God. And the answer is, no, you don't have to do all those works to get in the presence of God. It's to fellowship with the Son, have faith in Him. 
And so that's what this parable is uh, addressing, is that you can't combine the two. Impossible. And it will only make things worse. I mean, we've got, and we, we were talking, we had some questions this morning in the, the um, time we had this morning, and somebody said, well, I've got a friend who believes in Jesus, but they still kind of think that they have to do works. Are they saved? Kind of go, well, I don't know the heart of the individual, but if they're saying, I have to do this stuff, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. The two, the two together aren't going to get a person what they want, which is to be in a relationship with God, to be in His presence, to fellowship with Him forever. It's not going to work. In fact, it's even more catastrophic and confusing. Okay, I will say this. Sometimes the hardest people to get saved, and I use that term generically, getting saved, but having them come to Christ are people who are going, I have Jesus Christ and I have to do works, and they, they, they've been taught this through the years, and you can't convince them otherwise. It's almost easier to go to a person who knows they're a sinner and go, okay, you know you're in trouble. Here's the solution. It's in Christ. And uh, if you ever get a person into that type, of, we were talking this morning, if you ever get a person into that situation, you just have to remind them of the first person to enter into heaven after Christ dies. Go, who's that? The robber on the cross. Okay, he was a sinner. Did he ever get to go to church? No. Did he ever get to offer sacrifice? No. Did he ever get to do this? No. All he did was believe on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ said this, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You're going to be in heaven with me. No works, no rituals, none of it. Uh, But there is a segment of society that thinks, I have to have a part in this. Works, you know, I have to do this in Christ, and it's like, not going to work. And so the Lord, Lord addresses that. He's going to address it more strongly in a couple of his parables, but he's just starting off here uh, making the Pharisees mad <clears throat> in code because uh, he didn't explain this, but they probably thought that has something to do with this, but I'm not sure exactly what he's getting at yet. We look back and go, oh, okay. That's what he was addressing. Now we know. Any questions on it? I mean, you know, Thoughts? No? Okay. Lord, we thank you uh, that you save us by grace, not by works of the law. And uh, we thank you for that, that it is as simple as just believing what your Son has done on the cross. And uh, you delight in having us in your presence as we know from other parables and stories that there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels, that you rejoice And you did rejoice on the day that we came to Christ. And that you joy uh, in uh, us being able to fellowship with you. And uh, one day you will be delighted to have us in your presence forever. 
that will be around you and be able to fellowship. Uh, it'll be a joyous occasion and when we get to heaven and this glass that we have here that we see things darkly, we will then see you face to face and it will be a time of rejoicing uh, beyond uh, what we can even imagine uh, to be with you forever in a place with none of the scarring of sin here. So Lord, we're thankful for salvation without works of the law. Uh, may we be able to address this with friends that we know uh, that are still thinking that somehow works is going to get them in the presence of God and they're miserable trying to get enough things and they're unsure whether they're secure or not uh, because they're trying to work their way to heaven when they could just have the new life in Christ. May we be able to display that, teach that, share that with individuals we know and have some be able to rejoice at meeting the bridegroom, meeting Christ. We love you. Thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.